All right, we're going to continue on in the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 14, and I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 7 of chapter 14. Chapter 14, 1 through 7, you can find it on page 901 of those blue pew Bibles. Jesus is speaking. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Please pray with me. Father, we praise you for the Bible, for the word that you have given us for the scriptures, for the way that you have revealed yourself to us. Father, and we praise you that when we sing that you are a good, good father, it is not our conjecture. It is not wish casting. It is not um, just nice, peaceful feelings. But your son Jesus told us when he said to us, if our fathers who are sinful and wicked know how to give good gifts, how much more will your father in heaven give you the spirit when you ask for it? Father, you are a good God. And you have shown that from the very beginning. You have shown it from your powerful word. And you have ultimately shown it through your word who became flesh, Jesus. Father, we praise you for how faithful you have been to us this last week. Father, as women and men created in your image, you have given us the words that we have needed to say. Father, some of us speak locally, some of us speak nationally, some of us speak globally, some of us simply speak with one other person. But you have met us. You have sustained us. Father, you are the one who has called us as your church to be light into a community. Father, as we are tempted to take up arms and arguments, to draw battle lines and to decide who our enemies and our friends are, according to so many issues. We praise you, Jesus, that you have made it clear that while we were your enemies, you died for us. Lord Jesus, we pray 
that you would send your spirit as you promised and that you would help us to see you rightly. And as women and men created in your image, that we would be changed. That we would be different when we walk out of this room than when we came into this room. Father, you are the one who has said that we are to come to you to rest. Father, we confess that we are exhausted. And I know many of us feel like we are so tired that to imagine coming and engaging in this place is more than we can possibly do. Father, I pray that you would send your spirit and you would give us rest. That as you modeled and as you commanded, we would rest in your presence and that you would empower us for the week ahead. Father, you know our fears and our anxieties, and so we ask, will you meet us there? Father, you know the women and the men in this room whose sense of distance and lack of connectivity make us wonder, where are we? Lord Jesus, would you please draw us to yourself that we might see the Father in you. You are the exact imprint of his nature, and we praise you. Father, thank you for your word. Would you allow your work to do, your word to do the work in us that you intend it to do? And we pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, we continue on. And uh, Jesus has proclaimed that he is the way. And I think the question that's before us today is, what does it mean that Jesus is the way? If I told you that I knew the way to summit Mount Everest, you all should look at me a little bit screwy. And I could look at you and say, look, I know the way. I mean, I study it all the time. I know where Camp 1 is and where Camp 2 is, Camp 3 and Camp 4, and I know how you access the summit. I know where the Hillary step is. I, I know what you are supposed to do, where you're supposed to go. But you would say, surely there's more to going up Everest than a map. What does Jesus mean when he says that he is the way? I think that what we see in this passage is that Jesus reveals what he means by the way to us in three different segments. First, we see it in Jesus' affection. Secondly, we see it in Jesus' assertion. And finally, we see it in Jesus' assurance. Those are the three things I want you to look at with me. His affection, his assertion, and his assurance. As we ask ourselves, what does Jesus mean when he says, I am the way? First thing I want you to recognize is Jesus' affection in verses 1 through 4. Who is troubled in this passage? Remember where we are. We're in the upper room, by the way. The Passover is being celebrated. This is before Easter. This is as we celebrate Thursday night before Good Friday, right? You understand that that's what is about to happen. Jesus is about to be betrayed. We're still in that section. What did we read about Jesus just prior to this section? 
that he himself was troubled, right? Do you remember why Jesus was troubled? The same word that was used as Jesus' experience at the grave of Lazarus when he saw how death ripped humanity apart. That visual experience of frustration and angst that people recognized in Jesus. It tells us in chapter 13 that Jesus was troubled, and he says, the reason I'm troubled is because one of you is going to betray me. And thus, two weeks ago, we studied this idea of the anatomy of betrayal, right? And we looked at what troubled Jesus. But notice that now the disciples are troubled, and Jesus, even though he's troubled, recognizes their trouble. Do you see that? Jesus has told them in verse 33 of the prior chapter, he says, little children, yet a little while that I'm with you. You'll seek me, and just as I said to the Jews in chapter 8 and in chapter 7, so now I will also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus, the one with whom these disciples had walked with day in and day out for the last three years, is telling them that he's going to leave them. I think that would create some trouble. I mean, this is a heady time for these disciples. They're into Jerusalem. The, the triumphal entry has happened nigh on five days before. And, and this is time. Maybe Jesus is going to take the reins of his kingship now. And these disciples are going to be elevated to their proper place. Finally, we're going to be recognized. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to leave. And they're like, what? Not only that, but verses 36 and following explain how Peter who hears those words and responds to Jesus when Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot follow. Peter says, there's nowhere that you will go that I won't follow you. And Jesus turns and looks at Peter and says, Peter, before the daybreak tomorrow, the rooster crowing, right? That's what that means. You'll betray me. All of the disciples must have wondered, if Peter's going to betray him, what's going to happen to me? And so Jesus starts our passage by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus, in this state of troubledness of his own, the night of his own betrayal and arrest, is aware of his disciples' troubledness. I want to stop just a minute and ask you, are you troubled? Has your living in this broken world brought trouble to you? Do you believe that Jesus sees you? Because Jesus, in essence, says to his disciples here, I see you. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. And then he says this, believe in God, believe also in me. The word for belief can also be trust. And the reason you might want to think about trust is because oftentimes we say we believe a lot, but it doesn't really change the way we work on a day-in and day-out basis. Trust might be the better way of understanding it. Those of you all who have been to camp and who have ever done that trust fall, right? Your friends are down below you and you're standing up on that platform and you're supposed to cross your hands and fall back, right? You're supposed to what? Believe that they'll catch you? No, you're supposed to trust that they're going to catch you. And it is absolutely mind-boggling. Jesus is saying, 
believe in God, trust in God. And he says, trust also in me in your troubledness. Where do you go to relieve yourself of trouble? The troubledness that is deep in you, that sensation that you and I have that we are going to fix this ourselves, right? Jesus is saying, trust in me. But look at the picture that he gives them. Believe in God, believe also in me, or trust in me. And then he says this, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Does that strike you as a strange image? Why does Jesus go from recognizing our trouble and telling us to trust him to this conversation about God's house having many rooms. Do you remember how the gospel of John and Jesus' ministry started in chapter 2? Where was the first miracle? Do you remember? It was at a wedding, right? Cana of Galilee. Mary, Jesus' mother, comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, they're run out of wine. And Jesus looks at his mother and says, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. In chapter 3, what does John the Baptist say of Jesus? When all of the disciples are going to Jesus and his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, look at John and say, John, all of the people are going to Jesus. What does John the Baptist say? I rejoice in that. How can the friend of the bridegroom be sorry when the bridegroom comes? John the Baptist says, I rejoice at hearing the voice of the bridegroom, right? Jesus, in demonstrating that he is the way, through his affection, takes up the picture of marriage for his disciples. Did you know that in a Jewish marriage, what would happen was a betrothal, probably a year in advance, a contract, a promise, I will marry you. And then do you want to know what the groom does during that year? He returns to the house of his father. And do you want to know what he does? He builds a room on the house, for his bride, for them to live in so that he can return a year from then and take his bride to be with himself. Listen to what the disciples would have heard when they said to him, when Jesus said to him in verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. The intimacy of Jesus' affection toward his troubled disciples who don't understand what's happening, who don't understand what Jesus is saying, is him saying, trust me, I have committed myself to you. Church, what is the church called? The church is called the bride of Christ. Jesus here in the midst of trouble reminds his disciples, you are my bride. And you can be so sure that I am coming back to take you to myself. This language isn't just I see you, but this language is I love you. Jesus addresses their trouble and says, 
I love you. So my second question is, do you know that God loves you? Jesus, when he says that he's the good shepherd, says, my sheep, I call them by name. And when they hear my voice, they follow me. Do you believe that your name has crossed the lips of Jesus? The one who the book of Hebrews says is seated at the right hand, interceding for you now. The picture of the Old Testament is even more radical, that your name is engraved on the palms of his hands. Jesus is attesting to his love for his disciples is the very thing that generates the fruits of the Spirit. We love him because he first loved us. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, and peace. Peace is the opposite of a troubled heart. What do you do in times of trouble? When the relationships in your life are falling apart. When someone has told you something that you can barely hold on to, your sanity, because they've revealed it to you. I'm telling you that we should come and sit in this. Jesus' affection that reveals that he is the way. Thomas Akempis, a 15th century theologian, wrote a book called The Imitation of Christ. Second to the Bible, it is the most sought after and read Christian book in all of history because it began to be printed so quickly, right? But listen in these two sentences what he said. We must imitate Christ's life and his ways if we are to be truly enlightened and set free from the darkness of our own hearts. Jesus is saying he's the way, and here Akempis says we must imitate Christ if we're going to be set free. But then listen to this last sentence that he says. Let it be the most important thing we do then to reflect on the life of Jesus Christ. Church, the bride of Christ, what do you do in times of trouble? Do you trust in your bridegroom? We still don't really understand everything that Jesus is saying about being the way, but he is telling him, you know the way to where I am going. Jesus is drawing out his disciples so that he would reveal himself to them. Verses 5 and 6 talk about this, insertion that he, uh, this assertion that he now makes. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? We don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? It immediately reminded me of Louisa in preschool. It was just incredible. There's a story around my house. There was a teacher. Her name was uh, Megan Darrell, and she was fantastic. And she taught the kids Spanish at Park Street School. And one of the things that Megan did is she would bring in a book, and without any introduction, she would just start reading the book in Spanish. So picture Louisa, a four-year-old, surrounded by all these other four-year-olds, and they're sitting there, and the book is being read, and suddenly all the words out of Megan's mouth are Spanish. 
And the story is, is that Louisa looks at each other and is like, what, what is she saying? What is she saying? And Louisa raises her hand and goes, we don't understand. And Megan keeps reading and keeps reading. And finally, Louisa can't contain herself anymore. And she stands up and she goes, Miss Daryl, we do not understand your language. <laughs> you can just see it, can't you? And here, Thomas is just right there. We do not know where you're going. How in the world can we know the way? Look, you got to really appreciate Thomas's confusion at this point. It took the church centuries to understand who Jesus was. Don't you think it makes sense that this night Thomas would go, what are you saying? We don't know where you're going. How can we possibly know the way? Jesus' declaration to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and then the way that verse 6 ends, no one comes to the Father except through me, emphasizes the way. Jesus is saying, I am the way. And as one scholar wrote it, actually says this, Jesus is the way precisely because he is the truth of God and the life of God. Jesus is the way precisely because he is the truth of God and the life of God. How is Jesus the truth of God? Why do we study Jesus? Why would you pick up the Gospels? As somebody said in Sunday school today, what is going to motivate me to actually spend time in God's word? What's going to motivate you to spend time in God's word, to read the Psalms, the prayer book of Christ, to consider the gospel over and over again, is to believe that Jesus is the truth of who God is. Remember how many times we've talked about how in the garden, the evil gardener sowed the seeds of the lie of God into the hearts of human beings. And thus, they are in our hearts as well. God does not love us, and he is not going to give us what we need. And the trouble in our life is too much trouble. But as another commentator said this week, Jesus is God's gracious self-disclosure. In Jesus Christ, God discloses himself and his heart for a sinful, broken world that he sets about to redeem and to reconcile to himself. Jesus is the truth of God and Jesus is the life of God. How do you understand the life of God? Jesus is the word of God. This effective means of life, right? The very word of God at creation. Remember we were taught that in Christ, all things were created by him and for him, Hebrews 1 reminds us. The word of God that goes forth and says, let there be light, and there was light. The power of the word of God from which all of life is derived. Jesus is the life of God. Jesus is about to tell his disciples in about two chapters. We're not going to get to it till next year, sorry. But he's going to tell them this is what eternal life is. You should memorize this. What is eternal life? And you should be able to answer, eternal life is to know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's eternal life. Do you believe that it is life-giving for you to study Jesus? 
to consider Christ. You're exhausted from this week? Why did you come to church? Because this is where life is. And it's not because I'm an excellent preacher. It's not because everything in this congregation is done exactly right. It is not because there is not conflict here. It is not because we are not broken. It is because Jesus is the life of God. And Jesus says this at the end of chapter 6, or verse 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father. He just answered Thomas's first question. We don't know where you're going. Jesus, as we were told at the beginning of chapter 13, is going to the Father. But now Jesus makes it clear. Jesus is going to the Father. Jesus is saying, I'm the way to the Father. Jesus is saying, come to the Father. How do I know that this is what Jesus is talking about? Because the focus of 14, 15, and 16 is what? Prayer. You can cry out to the Father, and you don't have to think that I have to ask you. You can ask the Father directly. Jesus assures them that the Father loves them. The focus of this last evening of Jesus and his disciples is prayer. Access to the Father. Jesus, because he has entered the throne room of God, Hebrews 4, has given us access to that very throne room that we can access the mercy and the grace to help us in our time of need. Listen to how Thomas Aquinas talks about the power of prayer. This is great. God bestows many things on us out of his liberality. All he means by that is, guess what? God's wicked gracious to you, is how it would be said in Boston. He's wicked gracious to you and gives you all kinds of stuff. Even without your asking for it. And then Thomas says this, but that he, God, wishes to bestow certain things on us at our asking. In other words, there's some things that God intends you to ask him for. It's for the sake of your good, namely that we may acquire confidence in having recourse to God. That we can be confident that we have access to God. And that we may recognize in him the author of all goods. As another church father said, he said this, Think what happiness has granted thee, what honor bestowed on thee, when you converse with God in prayer and when you talk with Christ. When you ask what you will, whatever you desire. Jesus' proclamation, his assertion that he is the way is precisely because he is the truth about who God is and the life of God. Jesus is saying he's the way of God. Finally, his assurance to them in verse 7. Look at verse 7 for me. If you, had, if, you have, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Verse 7 is hard to translate. It can be translated lots of different ways. That's why the footnote 6 is there, and that's why you would go down to the bottom of the page and you would read, if you know me, you will know my Father also is one other option. 
I think what those options show you is that what it doesn't mean is that you haven't known me. But what it does say is that your knowledge of me helps you understand your knowledge of the Father. The gist of verse 7 to his disciples is that you know me. He says at the end of that, from now on, you do know him, the Father, and have seen him, the Father. Why? Because you know me, and you have seen me. Why is Thomas so confused? Well, it's the same reason that it took centuries for the church to understand the incarnation of Christ. The reality of the incarnation is what requires the exclusivity. No one comes to the Father but by me. Think about it for a minute. Two unions, two natures united in one person. The divine nature and the human nature divided, united in the one person of Christ in such a way that neither nature is confused. Neither nature becomes other than what it is, but is united in one person. The church struggled to understand how to even talk about this. But because it is the incarnate Christ, a person with flesh and blood just like me and you, that smelled just like you and I smell, that uniquely smelled, this is Jesus. And that's why we say no one comes to the Father. He says no one comes to the Father except through me. There has not been and never will be anyone other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man. This is the reality of the incarnation. But it doesn't just focus on exclusivity. It highlights the cross Jesus says, from now on, you know him and have seen him. Because he's saying, from now on, you know me and you see me. His suffering for them, his death on their behalf. The fact that he is the first among many to be raised from the dead reveals God. The Father's affection for us. And his absolute Glory. Why is it so glorious? And again, this is, this is what we ought to stop and go, wait a minute, what? God could have redeemed the world in any way he wanted. He calls stuff from nothing. He says, let there be light, and there is light. He could have done this in any way that he wanted. It was fitting for him to do it through Christ. What does that mean? It was most beautiful. It, it, it explained the Father's heart more than any other way could have explained his heart. God is saying, do you see my love for you? Do you see this? But it's also the magnitude of the incarnation. Listen, Thomas is going, I don't know if we understand and it's because this Jesus, who is flesh and blood, is saying to his friends, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. 
We were talking this week about this show on, uh, I think it's Netflix, called The Chosen. I don't know if you've seen it. It's somewhere online. I don't know where Mita accesses it. Look, there are all kinds of issues whenever you have a show about Jesus, all right? All kinds of artistic license, all kinds of stuff that happens in that show that you can't go back to the Bible and say, oh, that's where it came from. You want to know one reason why I would encourage you to see that show? And just watch one episode. Your mouth will drop to the ground when you see that the disciples interacted with Jesus as a human being. That's amazing. The show isn't called The Chosen One. The show is highlighting us, the chosen, in interacting with our God, who is both the Son of God and the Son of Man. The magnitude of Jesus being the way. Listen, how do you get up Mount Everest? It's not by a map that I give you. The very first time Edmund Hillary climbed Mount Everest, do you know how he did it? A Sherpa. Do you know what a Sherpa is? A Sherpa isn't just somebody that carries your gear. A Sherpa is an ethnic group in Nepal. And the Sherpa are the ones who know the mountains. Because the way up Mount Everest isn't just a map. It is how you climb. It's how you eat. It's how you sleep. It's the decisions that you make. It is everything. Jesus is saying, I am the way. Jesus is showing his disciples from now on, you have seen the Father and you know him because Jesus is saying the way is the way of the cross. What does recognizing Jesus as the way do for us? We're overwhelmed by his love and his love generates in us love. As we understand his love for us, we are filled with joy and we rejoice. And that joy brings peace. And and the rest of the fruit of the Spirit pull out patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Jesus is the way so that you and I might know what it means to follow him. Because it's a human being that said to his disciples, follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? I want to be bold here for a minute. Listen, if your heart is cold toward Christianity today, you have focused on something other than Jesus. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you live out of that relationship of his love for you? Do you live out of that? Is that what energizes you? Is the love and the joy and the peace that is generated because of who Jesus is mean that you walk in the way, the way of Jesus' life and of his death, the way of the cross and of denial, the way of his community. Could you be identified as one who belongs to the way? Did you know that starting in Acts chapter 9, as Saul, who would become Paul, went to persecute people, the way he chose who to persecute is those who belonged to the what? Those who belonged to the way. Those who were identified 
as those who followed Christ. The reason that Jesus is exclusively the way, the truth, and the life is because there is no one like the person of Jesus, the Son of God, and the Son of Man. We understand Jesus as the way through seeing his affection, his assertion, and finally, his assurance. Pray with me.